0: Hey everybody, I'm Joe Garofoli, The Chronicle's senior political writer, and before we get to today's show, I want to talk to you about something that I'm really excited about. It's a special podcast series that I'm working on with Tal Copeland, The Chronicle's Washington correspondent. It's called "Chronicle: Who Is Kamala Harris?" and it's coming on Monday, October 26th. We'll tell you everything you need to know about the vice presidential nominee, and The Chronicle has been covering her since 1994, longer than just about anybody. We'll talk about her childhood in Berkeley and how that shaped her, about her time at Howard University, and about her political career, of course. We look at that central tension that's always been at the heart of Kamala Harris. Is she a progressive or is she a cop? Or can you be both? Again, it's called Chronicle, Who is Kamala Harris? The whole series drops on October 26th, but get on over to Apple Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe now so you'll be ready for it when it lands. Okay, let's get on to today's show. We're going to talk about Howard Jarvis, the man behind arguably the most influential ballot measure ever approved by California voters, Proposition 13. Now, I've written about Proposition 13 for years, but I didn't know much about Jarvis himself, but our guest, Jason Cohn, does. His documentary about Jarvis called The First Angry Man will be broadcast on KQED on Friday, October 16th and is available for streaming everywhere. Learning about Jarvis and Prop 13 is valuable for a couple of reasons. It will help you understand why property taxes in California have been low and why public schools have been underfunded for the past 40 years. You also learn a lot about the man too. Jarvis is remembered as a tax fighter, but this film also looks at some of the dog whistle racist stuff that Jarvis has said over the years and how the Prop 13 movement linked up with the anti-busing movement in the 1970s in parts of California to magnify fears among white homeowners about how the state was changing demographically. And this is also a good time to talk about Prop 13 because there's a measure on the ballot that would change the way commercial and industrial property taxes are assessed. called prop 15 now let's talk more about howard jarvis and prop 13 with jason cohn jason cohn from your home in berkeley to my home in oakland welcome to it's all political we could have done this we could have done this in person this is we're we're probably like two miles from each other i I would have liked that joe but i'm I'm glad to be uh, on with you in any case so i moved to california about 14 years ago But 14 years after Prop 13 passed in 1978, I've written many stories about it, but I don't know much about Howard Jarvis himself. He's the godfather of Prop 13. So you and others in your film describe him as a gadfly, uh, somebody that the political establishment had ignored for a long time. He was originally from Utah. He was a Jack Mormon, a fallen Mormon. He drank and smoked. His dad was a Democrat in the state Supreme Court justice. Jarvis himself was a small-town newspaper publisher, and he moved L- to L.A. in the 1930s and got involved in, the, in right-wing uh, fringe groups, the John Birch Society, uh, which is a very anti-communist uh, a group uh, that, that, was, uh, that was out there for several decades. What drove Jarvis in his early days? Yeah. Um,
1: he, he was a really interesting character. Um, you know, there, there's not that much known about him other than his, uh, what's in his own book, you know, it was called, he wrote it after Prop 13 passed. It was called Mad as Hell. And it's sort of a, a classic work of political, uh, you know, self, uh, mythologizing and, um, um, you know, political scientists who have read it and done a, a little background research say that, you know, it's not 100 percent truthful about everything in his life. But you do get a picture of of uh, a very, um, you know, ambitious guy. Um, you know, one thing we don't talk about it in the in the uh, film at all, but he was actually quite a good athlete, apparently. Uh, Baseball player, semi-professional baseball player and a boxer. Uh, He was very competitive and kind of tough guy and, uh, you know, did fairly well as a small businessman uh, with um, small newspapers uh, across Utah. And as you noted, he moved to California, I guess, in the early 1930s. He had been involved in uh, Republican politics um, and he... Uh, ran for office many times um, was never successful um, he his sort of most notable campaign, uh, which we do talk about in the film I thought was really fascinating in nineteen sixty two he decided to run for senator in California. Now he was you know very much a a political neophyte uh, who had never held political office and he decided to challenge a sitting republican Senator in the primary uh, a popular senator named Thomas Kiko and He ran from the right um, Basically challenging Kiko as uh, calling you know, calling him soft on communism now. This is the height of the Cold War uh, there were sort of whisper campaigns from the uh, From the John Birch Society uh, Insinuating that Thomas Kiko was a communist and possibly gay and uh, Howard Jarvis Challenged him, and he, you know, was not successful. But what he found in his sort of barnstorming across the state was that his uh, his anti communist rhetoric sounded like everybody else. I guess you know he wasn't sort of making waves with his anti communist rhetoric. But he found that the issue of taxes really resonated with people. That there were there was a you know a, a contingent of people in California. Um, especially I think in rural areas who are really unhappy with the amount of taxes that they were paying. And so from 1962, he was a guy who kind of became like a single issue. Uh, Yeah, gadfly, you know, he would spend all of his time in city council meetings in Los Angeles or whatever, haranguing uh, politicians uh, about taxes. And that became his thing for, you know, the rest of his life.
0: And he, and uh, but as you say in the film, California was a different place in 1962. It was uh, <clears throat> in the height of expansionist mode. Uh, Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's uh, dad, as, as many in this generation may know him as, um, was uh, was there was a lot of uh, highways being built. There was the aqueducts being built from north to south that carry water all over the state. Uh, there were the the UCs were in expansionist mode. I think eleven uh, campuses were, were built in the 50s and early 60s, and and this is, it was a, it was California is a different place and, and taxes were, were high. I mean, the, the nationally, the upper tax rate was what, 90%. Um, and then you, you say that he kind of, uh, so th- th- that was, he was sort of a man out of time then, but in the seventies, as you say in the film, the sort of the perfect storm hit. People were disenchanted with government after Watergate and the Vietnam war. Um, he, there was the, the oil price shocks. And in California, property taxes, uh, you know, shot through the roof. Um, and so, and now the governor was Jerry Brown in the mid seventies and the state had $6 billion worth of taxes that they, and, and Jerry always being very frugal. He was always worried about the, you know, the, the oncoming storm and they hadn't spent that. And people were saying, Hey, why don't you kick that back down to us? what, what? How did Jarvis go from gadfly to sort of being in the leading edge of, of all that stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that was, his, that was his genius or just, you know, sometimes genius is just being in the right place at the right time. You know, he had had the same message uh, for the previous 16 years and he kept repeating it and uh, and people weren't ready to hear it until, as you say, all of these factors came together to make a moment in time where he suddenly seemed like a prophet instead of uh, like a kook and uh, you know, as a kind of overnight flip in a sense, you know, and, but you know, what we tried to focus on with the film is, is that it's not really so much about taxes. I mean, it is obviously about taxes, but the deeper layer there, the deeper level of thinking that, that Jarvis was smart to, key into was um, was that it's not what you feel about taxes necessarily, it's what you feel about government. Um, and so what he was really doing was undermining people's faith in government. And I think that voters in, in, in California and the rest of the country were kind of primed for that, because as you say, there had been a series of, you know, really corrosive uh, events uh, at the national level, Watergate and the Vietnam War, uh, the the oil price shocks, you know, the sense that, that government was not doing a good job of managing things. Um, and he was able to use that to say, um, you know, not just that you're paying too much taxes, but that government is uh, by its nature not capable of doing the, the right things with your money. They're just all it is is waste, fraud, and abuse. You know those terms that we're so familiar with now. I think he he kind of uh, pioneered that that line of attack.
0: Well, let's let's listen to a clip uh, from the film right now, um, uh, and and so we have uh, let's, to hear what Howard Jarvis is like because we many people who uh, knew Californians like myself, you know, been here thirty years, but uh, but but newer people who weren't around in that era may not know what he sounded like, and you compare him to um Howard Beale the, uh, the the great character from the from the uh, Oscar winning movie network if you haven't seen network kids go check it out 1976 best Oscar uh, movie who they think was a newscaster just fed up with the system he said everybody go outside of your windows right now and say I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore and there was there was a Howard Beale element uh, to Howard Jarvis uh let's listen to this clip right now he wasn't the usual suit that you saw on television debates and in press conferences. Am I supposed to sit here, Mike?
1: Sure. The ties rumpled, shirts rumpled, suits are kind of baggy. I mean, if you had to cast someone for this role, it was Howard Jarvis. You've got so many
0: consumer protection. He wasn't a handsome man or anything like that.
1: And he didn't use a lot of high highfalutin words, but then I don't think those, those work too well in politics anyhow. The is filled with moochers and loafers, right up to their ears. Uh, The object is to get the job and sit there until they get a pension. And in the meantime...
0: The problem is that there's no point in trying to control what he says.
1: Any time that the League of women voters comes out for something, the people better vote against it.
0: You would have to take the bad with the good.
1: Not life, liberty, and welfare. Not life, liberty, and food stamps. Not life, liberty, and illegal aliens just like the, the language of Donald Trump, I have to say, really reminded me of that. He talked about minorities who didn't work, the welfare cheats. He kind of wrapped all that into this anti-tax rhetoric.
0: But you see, I don't give a damn what they think about what I say. That was the beauty of Howard Jarvis. He would say whatever he, was on his mind. Tell us tell us a little about Jarvis as a front man for a campaign. He you say he's he's kind of pretty much running this out of his back pocket. Now, you know, statewide ballot measures in California, you, it takes 4 million dollars to get enough signatures on the ballot. You you have, you have you have to pick you pick consultants and, you know, this can go 20, 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars to to pass something. Tell us about how Prop 13 was run.
1: Yeah, I mean when he when it started, it was really just Howard Jarvis and he he hooked up with Paul Gann, who was, you know, another uh, anti-tax uh, advocate up in Sacramento. So they, you know, what what Jarvis uh, noted was that attempts to get um, a tax limitation measure on the ballot in California always ran up against this problem of getting enough signatures to get it on the ballot. It's such a big state, and so he he believed that he needed, you know, just him down in in. In Southern California, by himself, he didn't think that he could get enough signatures. So he hooked up with this guy, Paul Gann, who was up in Sacramento, insurance salesman, used car lot guy, um, who was also against taxes. And they, together, uh, with Paul Gann, in theory getting the Northern California and uh, Jarvis getting the Southern California, they believe maybe they could finally get one on the ballot that would be successful. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it was, it was Jarvis and that's why everybody called it the Jarvis initiative. Um, and he, you know, from the beginning was, you know, very much the energy behind the thing and he would go, um, anywhere, you know, if it was, if he was invited into somebody's, you know, to talk to seven people in somebody's living room and it was going to be a two and a half hour drive to get there, that's what he would do. And that's how he was running the campaign that for is,
0: That is such a throwback.
1: Right. It was it was old school retail politics in a state, you know, of I don't know if it, you know now it's what 40 million people it wasn't back then, but it still was still a very big state with a lot of territory to cover. So at some point um some uh professional politicians kind of recognized the potential of this movement and they Came into the campaign, and so he he kind of had like a professional campaign team, a media team, um, and you know an executive who was sort of helping him make decisions about what to do. So he started to do a lot more media, where he could reach people, uh, you know, in in much larger numbers than he was able to do just going kind of from living room to living room. And they found that he was a a very compelling figure on camera. Um, not because he was smooth, uh, not because he was good-looking like Jerry Brown, uh, but, you know, almost for the opposite reasons, because he had a kind of authenticity. He was your cranky uncle at the Thanksgiving dinner table, um, (laughs) you know, who kind of, who knew his subject pretty well, but was not, uh, you know, didn't feel himself limited to, uh, you know, being strictly... Truthful about everything. He
0: kept it simple too. It was not. He's not. He's not getting into deep political theory there.
1: No, he and, wasn't. Either. And you, you, you um, can glean that from Prop thirteen, the language of the bill itself. It's very, very simple. Um, you know what it does is it just says across the board all taxes are going to be uh, limited. Uh, all property taxes are going to be limited to one percent of the value, and. The state legislature and Jerry Brown at the time were trying to come up with a much more complicated formula for how to do it fairly so that the people who could afford to pay you know, higher property taxes like corporations would pay higher taxes. And the little old lady in Pasadena who's on a fixed income and is in danger of losing her house if her property taxes got too high, her taxes would be heavily limited. They were trying to figure out a technocratic solution that would please as many people as possible, you know, which is what uh, elected representatives are supposed to do, and Howard Jarvis cut through all of that with just the most simple formula you could possibly have everybody's property taxes get cut
0: right and let but let's also look at and you, you get into this in the film a lot of the rhetoric he has and 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 was using had been using for years is just it's full of dog whistle racism he's talking about quote unquote freeloaders uh and then there's a there's a racial component to prop their team. Uh, LA, uh, Los Angeles is very much changing at that time as is, uh, other parts of California, many more Latinos uh, immigrating to the state. Um, and the people who are benefiting uh, from Prop 13 are largely white and older Californians. Let's listen to another clip here about how, clip number two, how this is a revolution, but a revolution of the haves. The state has become an octopus. It's just gobbling up all our little homes. That's all.
1: This was a very compelling story. It was not right.
0: After a decade of protests led by students and people of color, a different voice was rising above the den. The voice of older, white property owners. A revolt of the haves. They considered themselves the cornerstone of the taxpaying public. And they considered themselves the one group that could not get any kind of relief through the legislative process. Talk about a little bit about how there was an anti-busing movement going on at that time. Again, uh, busing was a a way to seem to integrate schools, uh, schools from more affluent, largely white neighborhoods going to uh, uh, communities of color and and back and forth. Um, Talk a little bit about how that anti-busing movement hooks up with the pro Prop 13 movement.
1: Yeah, we, we kind of focus on the busing movement as being uh, illustrative of the way that Prop 13 was intertwined with race at the time. And you know, I want to be really careful to say that you know, if you voted for Prop 13 in 1978, that doesn't mean that you were a racist. Um, you, you know, I, and, and I, I can understand why people would be offended by the idea that this had anything to do with race, but I. I just think that it's very clear that it did. It was it was in the uh, the zeitgeist of how people felt about government at the time. It was changing, and it was changing for some of the reasons we talked about earlier. You know, the things that government had done that had soured people to government, like Watergate. But another thing that government had been involved in is this sort of great historic enterprise of creating, uh, equitable opportunity for all Americans, which includes things like integrating schools, um, affirmative action policies in education and in hiring, um, you know, all kinds of, uh, programs and, and, and laws, you know, the civil rights act that, Government had been involved in to try to create more equality in a society that was extremely uh, bound by race and There's just no question that that was part of what was changing the attitudes of a lot of white voters in Places in California and elsewhere and it's part of what made people uh, kind of turn Against government they started to feel that government was playing a redistributive role taking from some people and giving to other people and we do focus on on busing which was extremely uh controversial in los angeles at the time let me tell you i was um 11 years old in california when prop 13 passed or maybe 10. um and i remember you know being in a in an area where i would have been bused, and i really didn't want to be bused. and my family was opposed to prop 13. But we were also really scared about busing. I mean, the idea of, you know, as a 10 year old kid of having to get up, you know, an hour earlier and get bus to a school across town, all of that was really scary. And um, it was very emotional for a lot of people. And it, the, the two issues happened at the same time. The leaders endorsed each other's causes, you know, the, the anti-busing uh, and, the, and the tax revolt people um, endorsed each other's causes and the two got intertwined. But I'd say there's another thing that was um, we don't talk about really in the film, but it was also very important, which is how school, how education, K-12 education got funded was through local property taxes. And there was a Supreme Court uh, decision, California Supreme Court decision that said that the way that local schools were being funded was uh, inequitable because schools in rich areas Uh, which were mostly white, were lavishly funded and schools in black and Latino areas where the property taxes, uh, you know, uh, produced less revenue were, um, were impoverished and the schools didn't have enough funding. So there was an effort underway to start moving property tax revenue from richer white neighborhoods across town to black and brown neighborhoods. And that was also part of the zeitgeist at the time and you know people were much more comfortable to pay higher property taxes when they felt that the revenue from the property taxes was going to go to their neighborhood school um, and you know help their kid or their grandkid um less so when it was going to go across town to help some kids that they didn't know
0: we'll be back with more about prop 13 and howard jarvis after the short break and now let's get back to our conversation with jason Cohn about howard jarvis and the legacy of proposition 13. so let's let's talk about the uh you, you start to, to go here uh, the, the legacy of prop 13 you, you get into that a little bit in the film uh both the both the uh, legacy to californians like us and also the national legacy uh one of the legacies is that uh you know why uh, so many kids in california have massive student debt that's because the price of the uc has gone up uh why the the, the um uh in pat brown's day it was california higher education was supposed to be free to everyone now it's uh you know we're families tens hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt the gap between the one percent and everybody else is widened and Talk a little bit about for the the California aspects of this and the national, how this kind of spread nationally and uh, to the to the White House.
1: Yeah. Um, So when we were trying to figure out how to talk about the consequences of the tax revolt in California, it was very difficult to figure out what to focus on because we're we're literally talking about everything that government does was affected. And so you know you could kind of do a survey of all of the things that were um, that were hamstrung as a result of the constant uh, deficit problems that California began having, um, you know, from the 1980s on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the roads and the the water infrastructure and policing and healthcare and all of that. Um, But that didn't feel like it was going to be very good for a documentary and we wanted to find something that would have some emotional impact. And um, there was a a statistic that we came across which kind of floored me, um, which is that in 1978, when Prop 13 passed, at a national level, the total amount of student debt, college student debt in America, was somewhere around zero zero dollars. Now we're somewhere, I actually forget if it's 1.5 trillion or 2 trillion or something like that is where we are right now. Some, somewhere around $2 trillion. Don't quote me on that. Um, I need to look it up. But um, it is a huge amount of money. It's, you know, and, it's, and that is a, just a massive uh, albatross, you know, anvil around the neck of young people when they graduate from college. It is an anvil around the neck of the economy in general. Um, it's causes many uh young people from disadvantaged backgrounds to not even go to decide not to go to college because they don't want to graduate with fifty or sixty or seventy thousand dollars in debt um, and this is just something. That, you know, every Californian, I think, should be absolutely ashamed of. Um, but it's it is a national problem. It is not just a California problem.
0: And then uh, President Reagan picked up on this uh, when he was running for office. And once he got into office, uh, of course, he, he had been a, a small government guy all along. And, uh, you know, he picked up on this and, uh, in, 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 you know, wanting to shrink the size of government. Grover Norquist, um, uh, the, the famous anti-tax uh, advocate, had. Uh, politicians around the country signing no taxes pledges um so this the legacy of of Jarvis is uh is is uh, resonating to this day
1: yes that's right i mean it was so after prop 13 passed there was something that people called the spirit of prop 13 and it absolutely swept across the country um you know i think the first state was uh was Massachusetts, Massachusetts was all, which also has um, uh, an, an initiative system, they had something called question two and a half, I think, which was very similar to Prop 13. Uh, Idaho, I think, literally took the language of Prop 13 and just kind of replaced the word California with Idaho and, and got their version of Prop 13. So you had dozens of states across the country doing very similar uh, anti-tax or revenue limitation. Types of ballot initiatives the states that have uh, you know an initiative system like California does not all states do at the national level um, Jimmy Carter uh, very much got the message um, and he very quickly turned around and uh, and and signed a a massive estate tax um, uh, limitation Um, so that was one of the, the biggest tax cuts in American history. Um, so what happened essentially is there was a kind of contagion effect where, um, you know, journalists, everybody was writing about it. They were saying there's a new national mood. Americans are tired of paying taxes. Uh, we're heading in a different direction now. And, you know, we, we're, we've sort of been in that for 40 years. And I think that, you know, if there's one big idea that we wanted to transmit with this film, it's the idea that, that that is the water that we live in. You know, if you're you know, the idea of the fish doesn't uh you know realize their own water. Uh, we don't really realize that we're in a tax revolt, but we have been for 40 years. It is it is very much the nature of um of the political zeitgeist that we have been in. Anyone who's, you know, fifty or so or less, our whole political lives have essentially been uh, lived in this mindset that what we can do as a nation is very limited because of our um, lack of will to pay for what we need or what we want.
0: And and, and I wish I had a a nickel for every time I've written or said on TV or radio uh, how Prop 13 is, quote-unquote, politically untouchable, the the third rail of politics that's always been uh, cliched, uh, uh, referred to as that. That is changing, could be changing this year. Uh, Prop 13, a part of Prop 13, is on the ballot. It's called Proposition 15. It would not affect residential property. It would uh, change the way that commercial property is assessed. Right now, it's uh, commercial property is only reassessed you know, whenever it changes hands, uh, whenever more than fifty percent of it changes hands. So the way people get around about around this is that they Sell less than 50% of their interest in, in something. Uh, my colleague Roland Lee and I did a, a big story in the Chronicle about this uh, several days ago. Um, so, this would uh, now commercial property under Prop 15 will get reassessed every three years. This could bring in up to $12 billion more of revenue every year if it were to pass. Now, um, a couple of years ago, uh, John Koupal who is the head of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, the, the legacy of uh, Jarvis uh, to sort of protect uh, uh, the legacy of, uh, protect the protect uh, the what Prop 13 was all about. He told me that, um, you know, adults who are around, as you say, around what Prop 13 was passed, are aging. And so they're the people who were originally around then, who, who maybe would have been the original target audience, are fading. Uh, but yet he says their internal polls are still strong uh particularly on the residential side do you think that prop 13 the residential property side will ever be overturned if you were a documentarian in the future coming back to do this story what would do you think that this could ever uh happen
1: well i don't want to sound too much like amy coney barrett here but uh <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know if <laughs> I don't know that my job is to do forecasting. Um, I think that, you know, I, there's no question that Prop 13, you know, it has this aura about it. And, um, you know, it, it seems to, no matter what, it always seems to be around 60 something percent, uh, you know, favorables in polls that, you know, the public policy, uh, what is it? The PPP. Yeah. Um, that they, they do regularly. And it, it, it never really seems to dip below that. right? You know, on the other hand, it's clear that Californians' view of taxation in general um, has changed. I mean, Prop 30, which uh, Jerry Brown was successful in getting passed and, you know, raised income taxes on wealthy people and raised uh, uh, sales taxes on everybody, um, that was passed by, you know, a very comfortable margin. And it was passed because there was a recognition that we had gone way too far in terms of disinvesting from public education and other things that we need. So I, I think that there's, I think that we're in a a moment right now where, you know, both of those ideas are kind of uncomfortably existing side by side. You know, the idea that Prop 13 is this sac- sacrosanct thing and and we have to protect people's um, people's homes. Um, and the idea that we need more revenue to do the things, you know, to make the make the state be the great state that we all think it is. But when we look around outside and we see homeless people living on the street and the schools falling apart and the roads falling apart, you know, there's this cognitive dissonance. We We have this image of, you know, this golden state and we look around and it's falling apart and we know that we need more money to do it. So I think that there's there's Two things, you know, in people's minds at the same time, and it's kind of uncomfortable. Um, As far as Prop 15 goes, um, you know, I think it's polling slightly above 50% right now. Yeah,
0: the latest is about 51%. A lot of undecided, though.
1: Right, that's a very uncomfortable margin. I think that the – you probably know more about this than me, but I I think that they've always sort of said, you know, you need to poll – uh, above 60% if you want to pass a, uh, a ballot initiative, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's true or not.
0: That's the, that's the, yes, that is the old saw you want you want you start feeling a little comfortable if it's, if it's pulling over 60% and, and underneath that it's, uh, everybody's nervous because the, the default on many <clears throat> ballot measures is if I don't understand this or I don't understand what it's going to do, I vote no. Um, that's generally a pollster's sake.
1: What I think is really interesting, though, is how both sides are a little bit disingenuous about, about Prop 13 with this, uh, with this initiative. You know, like the, the, Prop 5, the, the yes on Prop 15 people try to avoid talking about Prop 13 at all because they know that, you know, it remains popular and they don't want it to be about Prop 13. They feel like if this is about Prop 13, they're going to lose. So they talk about closing the corporate loophole. And the prop 5- the the opponents of Prop 15 are completely disingenuous because they say that this is going to you know throw out Prop 13 and um, you know they either make the completely false argument that this is that it's going to take away uh, the the property the residential property tax protections of Prop 13 or they make the slightly more nuanced argument that it's a slippery slope. And once the proponents are successful with this, they're going to come after your residential taxes. Um, but I, you know, I think that they're both kind of
0: dancing around the issue a little. <laughs> it is. That's because it is the third rail. We will close with a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger quote on, uh, on prop 13 back in 2003, uh, when he was running for governor, uh, um, Warren Buffett was, uh, one of his advisors and before he became an advisor. He said uh, California's uh, cap on property taxes quote makes no sense. And then when he became uh, an advisor to Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger said, "If Warren ever mentions Prop 13 again, I will make him do 500 push-ups." So that's uh, so there is a physical cost for mentioning Prop 13. Uh, Jason Kahn, thank you so much for being uh, on. It's all political. The the. The documentary is called The First Angry Man. It's going to be on KQED. You can It's streaming all over the place. You can catch it. And it's a very timely film as we are voting in California and across the country. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Joe, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure. I said Prop 13 many times, so I'm going to go do about 8,000 push-ups now.
0: <laughs> thank you so much. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Jason Cohn. He's the director of The First Angry Man, which is streaming everywhere. It'll be on KQED, as we said, on Friday, October 16th. I'd like to thank Karen Crate for producing today's podcast. And I'd like to give a shout-out to our fabulous theme music, as always. It's called Cattle Call, and it's written by Randy Clark. and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And don't forget, coming October 26th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, Chronicle. Who is Kamala Harris? Our deep dive into the vice presidential nominee's history. Subscribe now. And remember, no matter whether you've benefited from Prop 13 or been screwed over by it, it's all political.